Hi, my name's Ian Beaton. You're about to listen to everyday people from differing backgrounds, but with one thing in common, a story. A story of adversity, a story of inspiration, a story of laughter, sometimes a story of sadness, or simply a story to make you think. I believe everyone has a story. I also believe that story should be shared. Welcome to So Watch Your Story. In the studio with me today, I've got Dan Martin. Um, Dan, welcome to So Watch Your Story. Um, you're looking bright-eyed, bushy-tailed and everything else, but it wasn't always this way, was it? So um, four years ago, Dan was over £20,000 in debt. He openly talks about this now. Um, so this is nothing that's going to embarrass him or say, Ian, you shouldn't have said that, right? He was uh, taking cocaine at least three times a week um, and he was drinking himself to a slow death. Um, he was anxious, um, riddled with insecurities and carried deep-rooted fear of never being enough. Facing what it meant to have been adopted and then the sudden death of his adopted mum to cancer at 18 really took its toll on Dan. Drugs and alcohol seemed to be the easiest way for him to deal with it, to deal with the shame, the grief, and the crushing weight of an identity crisis. But in this instance, Dan somehow managed to look in the mirror and pull himself around and out of his addiction. And he retrained as a cognitive hypnotherapist and an NLP practitioner. Today, he works with clients to unlock freedom from addiction for high-functioning high humans with his The Freedom Solution. Dan's motto is end addiction, gain clarity, and build the life of your dreams. It's not a bad little intro, is it, Dan? But it's a little bit sort of full of, uh, you know, the highs and the lows. It, it, dare we say that? Excuse the pun. But um, welcome to, to, to being here with me today. Um, I'm fascinated by your story, Dan, um, and you now are in a great place, but it wasn't always like that. Where should we start your story? Because in here, of course, in that intro, we mentioned adoption. Um, shall we go back to growing up, being a kid, being told you were adopted? Mm. Shall we start somewhere around there? Do we, where, do, where, would you, where do you want to start, Dan? Start at adoption is a logical place to start, I suppose. And I should start by saying that, like, despite the fact that I am adopted, I had a great upbringing. Mm. You know, my parents are very loving. They're very supportive. The position that I'm now in, I wouldn't be in had I not been adopted by them. Okay. So it's not like I was physically or sexually abused as a child. My actual upbringing itself was very, very good. Mm. But it was coming to the realization of what it actually meant to have been adopted that okay. was the problem i don't know exactly when that was but i have a very vivid memory on my mind of that experience and i think it was around eight years old so are I you are you kidding me no do you know why i say that right because that's exactly when it hit me because i'm also adopted yeah, I remember you saying that's amazing. At the same age, eight years old. Exactly the same age. That's amazing. That just made me tingle. Yeah. But please carry on. Yeah. So I can't remember the actual delivery, but as a kid, I was very angry and I harbored a lot of anger. It was Did almost you? like an on off switch, right? right? It was completely placid and um, emotionally unavailable or pure red, an eruption of emotion. And there's a memory in the summer in whatever year it was when I was about eight years old, so that would have been 2003, around that sort of time. And I was in the garden with my mum. And I used to have this weird thing where whenever my mum and dad would finish a bottle of wine, I would get the bottle and pretend to drink it. I'd fill it up with tap water and like pretend to be drunk in the garden. Would you? And it was a weird little behavioural trait that I had as a kid. So I was doing that at the time. I was <laughs> right. like stumbling around the garden at eight years old, pretending to be drunk, drinking water out of a wine bottle. And how, I can't remember how she delivered it to me, but that's when I found out that I was adopted. And I can just remember seeing pure red and erupting in anger and taking it out on her. And there was a like flat basketball on the floor, which I kicked to the side and it kicked my, and the ball hit my dad. And it was just like such a chaotic so memory. So it was a rage outburst. Complete rage. It, yeah. wasn't a, it wasn't a one of sorrow, 
yeah. upset. It was a it was a it was a rant. It was rage. And now I'm looking back on it, having done a lot of deep work and therapy and coaching, it was why me? Mm. Why me? What have I done to deserve this? It was like the victim mentality. Yeah. What have I done to deserve a different life? That was always the narrative that was running in my mind. The identity that was formed at that point in time as a result of the adoption was why am I so different to everybody else? Everybody else has got blood relatives and I'm living with people who I am not genetically related to. And that makes me inherently different. Mm. That was the perception which I was operating from. So that was then resulting in rage and frustration mm. at indirectly, I guess my birth parents were kind of giving me away. Yeah. But as children, I believe we're kind of inherently narcissistic because we believe that the whole world revolves around us. And that's not through any fault of our own. It's just because we don't know any different, right? As adults, we've got a lot of reference materials. We can go, ah, oh, okay, well, I was adopted, but I had a great life. And to be honest, it was probably for the better anyway, because if my adopted, if my birth parents had have kept me, then my life wouldn't have been as good as it is now. And I can kind of look at that objectively and say, yeah, this is the right thing that happened. But as children, we don't have that. We just have, well, I'm clearly not good enough. And that must mean that I'm a failure or I'm not worthy. Yeah, but the reality is, actually, and, and I, I used to frame it like this again later on. Mm. <laughs> at, eight, at eight years of age, I don't really know what I was trying to process. Right? Mm. And, and, and I've, like you, worked with therapists and, and, and sort of got clarity over this over the years. Mm. Um, but it's, um, for me, later on, framing the adoption process was actually... I was chosen. Mm, I like that. Which is a much healthier thing to think, isn't it? Mm, mm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, so obviously, you know, you, you've got this rage at eight mm. years of age. Then you talk about, I picked up on the fact that, you know, um, and, and meeting you personally, I sense a very placid nature. Mm. So rage is not your... Rage, rage is when you're bubbled over, right? Mm. When, when the fuse is burnt down and, and, and the, the firework explodes. Mm. But normally, that's a long fuse, would that be fair to say? Mm. You're, you're a placid person? It's very rare that I get angry now. Mm. And I should add that that rage showed up a lot when I was a kid, but it would go naught, which is placid, 100, which is rage, and then very quickly after that, it would just be tears. Right. And it was actually pain. It wasn't rage. The anger was almost a protection mechanism for something deeper which was shame and i explain this to clients when they present something like anger anger is usually a get the fuck away from me i've got something i don't want to go near mm. it's like a defense mechanism and that was what it was for me but the primary emotion that was actually beneath the surface beneath that anger and frustration was shame coming from that i'm not worthy or i'm not good enough for the birth parents so it wasn't really rage it was just um, my emotional container was full to the brim and there was no bandwidth at all so that anything which I received in a stimulus which I didn't like was then rejected by way of anger get out don't want to come in but beneath the surface of that it was shame does that make sense I've explained yeah, that yeah it does so obviously the, the other thing that's interesting about those days where when your mom had, had finished the the the, the wine mm. you'd go and get some tap water in there fill it up and pretend to be drunk mm. now that's ironic isn't it to what happened then later in adulthood yeah. but but what about sort of obviously um did you ever feel because we talk about this in your in your intro mm. of deep-rooted fear of never being enough hmm. do you consciously connect that to adoption because i'm interested here because you had a very happy childhood hmm. mom and dad were amazing you weren't you know you, there was no abuse or anything else or neglect hmm. um but where does where do you think this never being enough stems from I don't think it was just one event. Okay. You know, as children, particularly in the first two to four years of our life, that's when we're forming our sense of self and our, what I call human operating system. Um, a metaphor that I like or an analogy is our body is the hardware 
and our beliefs and values are the software. And in the earlier years of life, that's when we're forming our beliefs about the world, about ourselves, about other people, and they form the foundation of who we become as adults. So for me, as I explained a moment ago, it was always I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy for my birth parents. But it's just the belief that we're going to focus on here so that I'm not worthy. So from that point onwards, when that belief is formed, in my case, at a very, very, very young age when I was put up for adoption, I was constantly re looking for reasons to validate that as being true. So for me, it came up like it does within a lot of children when they're having parent-teacher review meetings. I was always the guy who it was, he's got so much potential, but he's just not putting it to use. And when I'd try and apply for a job later on in life, I'd have my hopes up for a dream job and then I wouldn't get it because there'd be somebody else who was better. So it was always reinforcing that not good enough. So it's never one sole event. It's mm. one event to plant the seed mm. and then every other event from that point onwards is almost like water going on the seed to allow it to grow bigger and bigger and bigger mm -hmm. until the point where it just internally combusts and then it all breaks down and life falls to shit, <laughs> which it did for me. <laughs> yeah. And, and let's, let's, so, so, education schooling all good no not all okay. good no i was i wasn't academic okay never believed myself to be a smart guy and i still don't to this day but i'm kind of okay with that now i'm at a place of self-acceptance with that like i'm not the smartest guy in the room but that's okay um scanning back across what happened in school year six which is the final year of primary school in the uk i got expelled like four weeks before the end of when you graduate and go into secondary school because I was a little pyromaniac and reflecting back on it this is where my relationship with addiction actually began which is wild but I used to love setting fire to things and it wasn't the fire itself that I loved it was the rush that I got from just burning things it gave me dopamine and dopamine is at the heart and center of any addictive behavior as you know and I had this fascination with fire and setting fire to things and I was setting fire to toilet paper in the primary school toilets and got caught doing that. So that was the start of uh, a series of less than ideal situations in school. But for the most part, I was a fairly well behaved kid. I just liked to mess around and chat and cause mischief here and there. But I expelled from school at 16, no, in year six, sorry. And then in secondary school, I was fairly well behaved in year seven, eight, and then nine is where the other addictive behaviors started. So didn't really feel like I fit in, in secondary school and didn't feel like I had a solid tribe that I could be with and really confide in. So I kind of fell outside of the, um, group of friends which I was connected to in primary school and moved towards a group of people who were quite heavily involved in various different drugs, primarily cannabis at that time, so I smoked a lot of weed. Um, and I'll get into that in a moment, but we're talking about school here. So I got kicked out of secondary school at age 15 for selling weed. And to add an insult to injury, I was actually kicked out whilst in a detention, like rubbing salt in the wound, which is very painful. But um, yeah, in a detention, the guy who was leading it, Mr. Murray, was a history teacher, and I actually quite liked him up until that point, but that changed our relationship. <laughs> he saw me um, pulling a little Adidas man bag, thinking I was a little rude boy, out of my backpack, and he was like, this is suspicious, something's going on here. So like, yeah, no shit. Rumbled you. Yeah, he did, proper rumbled me. <laughs> and I knew it as well, I knew it. He was maybe like 50, 100 feet away, as I was at the back of the school field picking up litter, and he just went, come here. I went, oh no, something's going on. Pulled me into the head teacher's office and there were two police officers in there, oh, as wow. well as my mum and dad. Oh God, <laughs> yeah. shit. Yeah, you know those moments where your heart just falls. It's oh, like, oh my no, God, could do without this. No yeah. way. Yeah, but they, they thought I was such a nice guy. I got so, um, <laughs> so honest and so genuine that they arrested me and then de-arrested me and said, <laughs> you're free to go, but you How can't you come to this school anymore. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, which is a weird thing. It's a shame as well, because I was really looking forward to smoking a joint on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> um, you um, you obviously, you had a, and, and you know, you've been very transparent on platforms like LinkedIn and, and, and other social stuff, and you do some keynotes every now and then, and, mm. you know, you're, you work with, with clients. And I always say, you know, 
the best teacher is someone who's experienced it. Mm. Yeah. So, and we can we can we can move into this part of the evolution of the journey with with with, with you getting heavily into into drink and drugs. But mm. you had a successful job, didn't you? Mm. Which is something which. You know, I want to try and dispel a few myths here today as well, mm. because often when people in certain elements of society say, oh, I know a drug addict, mm. their go-to will be, oh, must live in a, in a deprived area, um, you know, no opportunities, from a broken family, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know someone who's got a drink problem, same go-to mm -hmm. in thought. It's not the case, is it, Dan? No. And let's, let's, let's jointly dispel a few myths over this because mm -hmm. you, work with, you work with a lot of um, high, high performers who mm -hmm. are addicted. Um, so... Help us to just kick those into the bushes. Mm -hmm. Addiction is addiction, right? Mm -hmm. It's an illness mm -hmm. and it can get anyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a continuum. It's not an on-off switch. We're all addicted to some degree, particularly to things like mobile phones. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of stigma and judgment that surrounds addiction because of, as you say, when most people imagine an addict, and for the listeners right now, it'd be an interesting thought experiment. Close your eyes and picture an addict. What comes to mind? It's probably going to be a disheveled, maybe middle-aged person in a um, like a crack den kind of place and there's needles and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's like, that is addiction, but it's at the far end of addiction. Yeah. And it goes all the way down to scrolling on your phone. That is all addiction. It's just at completely opposite ends of the spectrum, mm. right? All falls within the same umbrella, mm. but then within that, there's so many different, um, so many different directions that you can go in. And I don't like the term disease for addiction. That's okay. something that you hear come up quite a lot. And disease, this is maybe just my personal beliefs. Mm. Um, disease strikes me as something that one catches, and I don't think that addiction is something that you catch. It's something that is formed over a long amount of time, often due to adverse childhood experiences. And that's something which is often overlooked. Yeah. I don't believe that addiction is always a choice. Addiction is often a coping mechanism to medicate pain and suffering that people are experiencing. And not a lot of addicts actually realize it. It's always an unconscious process. And we've spoken about yourself before, Ian, you've said that you experience addictive behaviors. And I think that you agreed with me when I said that for me, it was very automatic. It was an unconscious procedure going and doing the behavior. And at the time I didn't realize that I was running away from pain, but now reflecting back on it, I absolutely can recognize that that was the case. Addiction isn't a moral failing. It's a very complex, nuanced problem mm. that is manifested in infinite different ways. Mm. It's not a one size fits all. Yeah, and and you know, as you're explaining that to me, um, Dan, so articulately, thank you. I'm also sort of thinking, hey, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that we haven't even said as well. There's people who are addicted to pornography. Mm. There's people who are addicted to um, gaming. Mm. There's people who are addicted to food. Mm -hmm. Right? We become obese mm -hmm. and ill. There's people who are, it's just a whole gambit, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, it's, it might be helpful if I define it in my opinion. Addiction is any behavior that we continue doing despite the known negative consequences. That end bit is the most important part, right? It's despite the known negative consequences because by very definition, if we continue going back to behavior that we know is causing us harm and discomfort, that behavior then has control of us and thereby becomes an addiction. And quite right in what you say, absolutely anything can become an addiction. Name some kind of behavior, there'll be somebody on the planet who's addicted to it. Yeah. Yeah. So your career, early career, mm. what were you doing? 
my early career started in greenkeeping, actually. So one of my first jobs out oh, of school okay. was, was cutting grass. <laughs> but this is a period of time where I had no idea what I wanted to do. Right. I had no idea. I just knew that I loved cars initially. Mm-hmm. So started as a greenkeeper, worked there for a little while, then went to work for one of my school friends' dad in a mechanic workshop, quickly realized how much I hated that because it was cold, it was dirty, I was getting paid nothing mm-hmm. and just didn't enjoy it. Um but then I felt motivated at my mum's death. So my mum died whilst I was working in the mechanics workshop and wow. it kind of split me in two. Part of me was like, I really want to go and make her proud. And then there's another part of me which was in pain. But at that point, I thought I'm going to go and make her proud. And to me at that time, it was going to do an apprenticeship. So I started an apprenticeship at a panel beater workshop. So, you know, car body repairs. Sure. Did that for a while, but it was very similar to what I was experiencing in the mechanics workshop insofar as it was cold, it was wet. The people there didn't give any respect. And this is kind of normal for people who do apprenticeships, particularly in like a manual trades Mm -hmm. job. You are perceived to be the guy who goes and makes the tea. You sweep up all the shit. You empty the bins. You do all the jobs that nobody else wants to do. And I just didn't want to do that. So um, I posted about this the other day. You might have seen it. I walked out of that job with nothing else planned just because I hated it so much. Mm. Um, So that's my very early career. And it was at that point... At my grand's funeral at the time, I was chatting to my cousin who's two years younger than me and he was earning double the amount of money that I was working in sales. And I was like, hmm, well, if he can do it and he's two years younger than me, I'm sure I can I can do that. So <laughs> that's where my um, career in sales started almost egoically. I was like, well, he's two years younger than me. How can he possibly be earning more money than me? I need to go and do it now yeah, just to kind of prove it, a that's point. It. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? And you started on the sales ladder. And what, what were you selling? leaflet distribution services so Mm. we don't really get leaflets anymore (laughs) they've kind of been killed off um and this is the first time i've ever said i'm showing my age now i'm an old guy but (laughs) even um even this is like a long time ago right Right. um how long ago would this have been nearly 10 years this was nine years ago so pretty much every day you'd walk through your door and you'd see a pile of leaflets on the front door wouldn't you where they've been stuffed through so the company I worked for basically worked with various different businesses in a particular catchment area, partnered them all together to save their save money on distributing their leaflets. And I was selling that service, basically. So it was a very old school sales role whereby they'd say, today you're in North London, go to North London, knock on businesses and try and sell them leaflet distribution. And you can probably imagine the kind of response I got wow. from that. Wow. Yeah. That's hardcore, man. Yeah, it's tough. That's tough, it dude. Was tough. It was That's tough. That's tough. Yeah, it was tough. I wouldn't have it any other way in because it was like, um, it's a very stereotypical phrase in sales, right? It's like building a tough skin. What that means is go and get told to fuck off over and over again. Yeah. It's true, man. Yeah, it's it is. True. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. I did get told to get out of my shop. I'm not interested. Okay. Tail between my legs onto the next one. <laughs> so after after cutting your teeth in a really ruthlessly hard, and anybody who says, "Oh yeah, that can't have been that bad," go try it. Right, go try, yeah. go try cold calling in its real, real, true sense, knocking on doors of something which nobody really sees value in, yeah. and you've got to craft a narrative, a storyline, to convince them to say yes. Yeah. Just go do it right and if you pull through that you are building up enormous resilience mm. aren't you absolutely yeah yeah so where, so where did you go to after that then what, what happened after that from there i went into recruitment and that was just as tough to be honest mm. that was just as tough but yeah. the leaflet distribution role was very much face to face yep recruitment was where i learned how to sell over the phone yeah very different but, skill yeah absolutely different skill mm. um and it was very old school you know i remember my first day it was literally there's a list of people there's a phone start calling okay it's like the scene out of wolf of wall it Street, is a bit isn't like it? that yeah, yeah. where it says like to jordan belford and he's sitting there he's daydreaming a little bit and he kicks the back of his chair and says pick up the fucking phone yeah that's <laughs> it yeah very similar <laughs> Very, very similar to like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. And again, recruit, recruitment, you know, tarnished reputation over the years. But mm. from a perspective of once you get good at it, mm. you can earn shitloads, right? Yeah, absolutely can. With very little experience. As long as you're personable and you can mm. um, employ conviction in the conversation, then you can yeah. do really, really you well. You can do really well. Yeah. Yeah, you can. Yeah. So did that 
when are we now, Dan? Because we haven't mentioned alcohol up to now, particularly, apart from when you're swigging water out of a bottle you know, when you're a kid. <laughs> but yeah. is, 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 is alcohol starting to, is it, is it, on, is it in your life now? It's de- yeah, it's here. It's actually at this point where the drug use and alcohol consumption really started to ramp up. I was using it a little bit when I was working in the leaflet distribution role, mm. but not really. I believe that really I was in a state of shock after my mum died when I was 18. And that state of like emotional paralysis lasted for a couple of years. And then the emotion started to come in, at which point I started to drink a lot and take a lot of drugs to kind of numb that out, all unconsciously at the time. But that was... Um, when I started the recruitment job, really. And as I said earlier, addiction is so complex. It wasn't just the fact that I was starting to feel pain. It was also the people that I was connected to. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of people listening who can resonate with, you know, peer pressure and the type of people that you're connected to having a massive impact on the behaviors that you you do. And that's when I started drinking a lot. It's particularly when I started doing a lot of cocaine as well, because it's kind of systemic in recruitment, right? It's almost an expectation where were you at the cocaine. time of this? Were you in London or were you... Where, where I was were actually you? in Hartford. You were in Hartford. Hartford, okay. yeah. Okay. I was in Hartford. Um, going to London quite a lot, but yeah, in Hartford. And it's also when I started taking steroids, interestingly, that happened at the same sort of time, which was another slightly unusual addiction. Mm. Um, but it's just, I felt insecure. Mm. just felt very, very out of place and uncomfortable in my skin and when mm. steroids are put in front of you it's like yeah you can get in really good shape in very little time mm. at very low cost you want in yeah absolutely i want in yeah so i started that at the same same kind of time as well but that's, that's interesting yeah and when you talk about i don't want to take you to any painful points by the way but obviously you, your mum passing away was mm. awful for you it was um, i was almost in denial like long term it was bad but short term it was around that time when i was smoking a lot of weed and I don't know if you smoke much weed, but it kind of numbs you and gives you like this this psychological fog. So everything's a bit blurry. And even though while she was very ill at home with um, brain and womb cancer, there was oxygen tanks throughout the home and I was almost caring for her every day. I still hadn't consciously accepted the fact that she was probably going to die. I was just in denial because I was so dazed and confused as a result of all the weed that I was smoking. I hadn't really accepted any of it. And I didn't. At all, really. I didn't cry for like three years after that wow. because I was in this state of shock. Mm. And um, I knew it was really serious the morning it happened because my dad came downstairs and he was crying. It was the first time I'd ever seen him cry. Wow. And I was like, yeah, this this is serious. There's something something going on here. But then and on the day of her funeral, my best mate was at the funeral because his mum and my mum were like best mates and very very close and i consciously chose not to cry because i didn't want to appear weak and all of that emotion that needed to move through me on that day was just locked down packaged away yeah isn't that interesting yeah a very masculine yeah male thing to do to say i'm not going to cry yeah even though you knew you wanted to. Oh, I needed to. I, it was it was like overwhelming. Yeah. But I was carrying the coffin and I didn't want to appear weak in front of my mate. So it's like to- it's toxic masculinity, really. It's like that's, it is. That's not healthy. No, it isn't. No. And so I'm thinking as I'm, I'm, I'm like, oh, jeez. Yeah. Um, so you get into recruitment. Mm. Recruitment, fast-paced. Yeah. I'm surmising here, but you can help me fill in the gaps. After work, yeah, everyone's euphoric if they've had a good day. Yeah, down the pub. Yeah, a few beers. Yeah, yeah. Well, euphoric or bad? That's the be- or bad. That's the beautiful or thing bad. about cocaine. It's like you had a good day, go get high. You had a bad day, go get high. You had an alright day, make it better by going to get high. It's like there's no when you're in it, there's no bad time to do it fuck right so i wasn't actually i wasn't that wasn't the peak of when i was using it that was when i was kind of just starting to dabble and it was just making its way into my world slowly but surely um and i worked there for 
maybe like a year, a year and a half, something like that before being made redundant because the company was closing its Hartford branch, moving down to London and um, I couldn't afford to do it. So I went to work for another recruitment company, which was fairly non-eventful to be honest. That was kind of a fairly calm period of my life. I was using Coke every now and again, but it wasn't so bad. That was a period when I was really abusing steroids, kind of went far down the bodybuilding and okay. so that was when I was really really deep in that world and that's a whole other kind of chapter of life that I could go into because I was taking testosterone and trenbolone trenbolone is five times as strong as testosterone it's mega it's, it's very very powerful steroid and I had no idea what I was doing I was just injecting it and saw that I was getting a lot bigger I thought this is great can't be anything wrong didn't ever consider the consequences which is crazy but when when your hormones are so imbalanced, particularly testosterone and estrogen, if your testosterone is really high, your estrogen will generally drop. And in men, what that can do is cause an increase in breast tissue. Okay. So I got that. I got this condition called gynecomastia, which is basically where men form breasts as a result of the fat growing behind the nipple. So I got that and it made me feel really insecure because all of a sudden I had yeah, I yeah. had breasts, yeah, yeah, right? And yeah. I couldn't wear, I chose not to wear any t-shirt other than black because it just was really visible. Wow. So another consequence of my uh, addictive behavioral tendencies. So because it was self-induced, I couldn't go through the NHS to have the surgery done to remove this mm -hmm. um, fat tissue. So I flew to Poland and had surgery done privately with a surgeon who was registered in the UK, but had his practice over in Poland. So I went and had that done um, at... 19 years old then came back and because i'd had the gland removed my addict mind thought well now the gland's been removed there's no chance of it happening again so i can go and take steroids oh you're joking <laughs> no no so i went and did it again and i stayed on steroids for about four years after that point whilst the cocaine and drug and alcohol use was also increasing so it was like one of my friends has said to me looking back is that like, i don't know how you're still alive honestly like self-destruct in yeah. every single way possible yeah you've posted some very graphic images at times yeah um of you and you look so different on those images dan mm -hmm. jesus it's not it's not hardly recognizable mm -hmm. you're standing at the camera mm. you're gesturing shaking bags of coke mm. to the camera mm. and you look quite pleased with yourself yeah yeah, there's one where I've got them hanging out of my mouth. Yeah, you've got them hanging out of your mouth. Yeah. There's another one where, and I, I, I want to go to those two, but there's another one where I, I looked at this image and I was like, holy shit, seriously, what must you think? Soon afterwards, but certainly looking back on that, there's one where you're on the pla you're in the concourse of a, of a train station and, and you're, you're wiped out. Mm -hmm. I think you're in blackout mm. um, and, and somebody's taking a photograph of you and, mm. and you're just, your hands are everywhere. And mm -hmm. it's like, so, but what's, <clears throat> what's happening when, you know, no, let me ask this a different way. So what, what is, does the alcohol trigger the cocaine behavior, i.e. are they coming hand in hand for you? Mm. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, they absolutely are. It was generally is alcohol cocaine then maybe some mdma and then some ketamine to round the night off so i'd go to sleep when i got home that was the uh the chosen four compounds most of the time and that picture which you're referring to there that was um ultimate self-destruct mode that one and it was um trying to remember what i was doing that night i was a big raver i used to go to a lot of clubs and 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 um events as opposed to pubs but it was non-stop and it's i used the word systemic earlier when i was talking about recruitment but in that kind of scene people who go raving don't stop and once you take cocaine or mdma or something you don't want the night to end so you'll do anything within means to continue on that journey even if it comes at the risk of destroying your mind and body in my case so what was the <clears throat> what was the point? Escapism. Mm. It was pure escapism for me. I was working in financial services when everything was at its peak. Should we move on to that point now? Like yeah. I skipped forward yeah. a few years. Yeah. Because 
did a career in recruitment, got to a point where I was so fed up with recruitment. And in recruitment, you have umbrella companies. They're basically a financial services business that will pay contractors on behalf of the recruitment agency. Okay. And I ended up going to work for one of those. So I went from working in recruitment to selling to recruiters. Okay. Um, so I was still very much connected to mm. that world. And whilst this isn't a widely spoken about truth, it is a truth. Umbrella companies have BDMs, the business development managers, account managers, these type of people who look after different recruitment agencies. And that whole industry, that dynamic between um, umbrella company and recruitment is very much built upon the foundation of relationships. So the stronger your relationship with your recruitment clients, the more chance you've got of them referring clients to you by okay. way of contractors. Okay. Knowing what we know about recruiters, they're heavily influenced by um, alcohol and drugs, right? They love that. Generally, I'm not, not, not to stereotype too much. I know that there are going to be some very, um, very good by the book recruiters out there who aren't doing this. But for the most part, there are a lot of recruiters who do go out and party. So when you put someone like me, who is already um, drinking a hell of a lot, taking a lot of drugs and deeply involved in the party scene into a role whereby that is almost encouraged because it... <laughs> It helps you build gives you better build relationships. Yeah. Bloody hell. It's a recipe for disaster. So I was um, working in London at the time. So I'd be out two, three days a week entertaining recruit recruitment consultants, which was um, at the time great. I couldn't have asked for much more than that because I got a company credit card and it didn't cost me anything. I could go to really nice restaurants and drink a load and then go out and buy Coke in the evening. And it was it was great. And then beyond that, I was also going out, drinking, taking drugs in my personal life as well. So it was like, from both angles, professional and personal, alcohol and drugs were everywhere I turned and I almost couldn't get away from it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you talk about <clears throat> numbing things. Mm. And I know this is something you must work with your clients with extensively. Mm. Do you know what you were trying to numb? Yeah. I said that grief that I was pushing away. Right. Right? It was. It doesn't go anywhere. When you push your problems away, they don't disappear. If you ignore it, that's not like releasing the pressure valve and just getting rid. They're still there. Mm. And that's the energy that compels most people towards addiction. Because we push away all of the pain and discomfort that we don't want to feel. Yeah. It's still within us. Yeah. It's emotion. Emotion is energy in motion. If we're pushing it away, it's no longer emotion. So to get energy moving through us, this is my opinion, by the way, this isn't something that's like deeply rooted in science or, uh, <laughs> or addiction. This is just what I observe in myself and in my clients. There's no energy in motion because we're pushing it all away. How do we get that energy in motion? We go and take something that gives us energy like cocaine or alcohol, or whatever. They give us different forms of energy, right? So... Mm -hmm. Um, didn't want to go near the grief, did want to feel good. So cocaine was like medicine or alcohol was like medicine because it numbed that pain away. Because obviously the alcohol is taking you to a certain level of euphoria. Then the cocaine is taking you to another level of euphoria. The MDMA is taking you to another level. Mm. Anything that goes up has to come down. Yeah. How did you feel the day after mm. when you... How did you feel the day after when you'd been on a huge bender with, mm. with alcohol, Coke, MDMA, whatever else mixed in between? Mm. And you come down. How do you, can you walk us through those feelings of waking up? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It depends what period of life we refer to in that, because there was a good three, four year period where it wasn't a problem. In the mind of an addict, just accept that as part and parcel of going out and doing it. You know, you go out, you get fucked up, and the cost is you feel shit the next day. But that's a price that most addicts are willing to pay. But if I can move forward a little bit towards more recent years where we are now, heading towards the end of 2019 is when the hangovers became about more than just physiological, I've got toxic substances in my body and they're making me feel rough. It became more emotional. And that's largely because of an ayahuasca experience I had, which we can get into if you want. But that experience kind of opened me up emotionally 
And that grief and pain and shame and everything else that I was pushing away from adoption and loss of mum, that was starting to come up and I couldn't do anything about it. So I'd go out, get fucked up as I always did, wake up, and it was more than just a hangover. It was the shame, the grief, and everything else that I'd been packaging away. That came up with the hangover, which made it a lot harder to push through. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. We get in anxiety as well. Oh, yeah. I've always been anxious. I've always been a very anxious guy. Even as a kid, I didn't locate it and that was able to articulate it as anxiety as a kid mm. always been very nervous never been very confident in social situations mm. and um you know i'm still anxious now Anx anxiety is normal right it's, a, it's an inherent part of being human mm. but is it chronic and it's getting control of you that's when it's a problem yeah and that is what it became around that sort of period towards the end of 2019 so talk to us about this what was it i'm gonna say shamanic but i've got that wrong <laughs> no it's shamanic yeah that's right yeah okay. ayahuasca oh where did I start with this? So, um, 2018 was the year at which my partying peaked. And I used to go on holiday with my best mate every year. And around November, December sort of time, we'd jump on a call for about two hours and we'd map out what festivals and events we were going to go to the following year. And we were mapping one of our holidays out. We were planning to go to Ibiza. And we both listened to the Rogan podcast, Joe Rogan. And he had had guests on who spoke about this mysterious ayahuasca a few times and for those who don't know ayahuasca is a psychedelic brew made up of two different plants which are psychedelic and it's been used indigenously by sham shamanistic tribes in um, south america for hundreds maybe thousands of years and it's slowly making its way over to the west and it gives people profound visions and sometimes um, deeply emotional and arguably spiritual realizations and we got chatting about this when we were on that call. Neither of us were in any way, shape or form spiritual, but we'd taken mushrooms together and we thought, <laughs> this will be fun, not knowing what we were getting ourselves into. So what started out was booking a trip to Ibiza actually ended up being a trip to Peru. And then three months later, we were on our way there. After like 18 hours worth of flying, we arrived there. And we got the shock of our lives when we started speaking to the other people who were in the ceremony because someone was there, bless her, who had lost her husband two weeks earlier. There was another guy who had AIDS and he was cripplingly depressed about having that. And there was some really, really um, deep trauma in the people who were going to Peru to sit with ayahuasca and try and work through their problems. And then there's me and my mate at uh, 22 years old going, well, this is going to be a good time. We were so out of place and... Um, short term it was very very challenging because like I said I was largely emotionally unavailable at the time wasn't in any way spiritual and then I was surrounded by a group of people who were grieving and in a lot of pain and trying to work through their their challenges um, and there was just this dissonance between me and this life that I'd suddenly stepped into whereby everyone was really vulnerable and I didn't know how to be vulnerable and I just felt like something had taken a sledgehammer to the life that I was living and just kind of shattered it all. Wow. So <clears throat> it was almost like universe's way of saying, wake the fuck up <laughs> and start sorting yourself out. Um, like the, the veil lifting of the life that mm. I was living. And it wasn't like immediate, right? It was, um, it was a slow and gradual process, but that experience where I drank uh, ayahuasca and had a deeply moving spiritual awakening, I'd call it, took me from heading right and I started heading left. And that's when all of the emotions started to come up and move through me and the hangovers became about a lot more than just feeling rough. It was grieving and it was coming to terms with the fact that I was adopted and maybe that did mean that I wasn't good enough for birth parents and all of these suppressed beliefs and emotions that I've been pushing away for so long started to come up to the surface. Yeah. Mm. So did you, even though you turned left, mm. <laughs> um, did you continue? Because you, you're still referencing the hangover, so I'm, I'm presuming yeah. that you, you, you kept on yeah. snorting coke and... Yeah, for about two years. For about two years, but I was conscious of it at that point. Whereas before, I didn't really perceive it to be a problem. I was just going out and getting high and didn't feel any guilt or shame as a result of it. Right. Whereas from that point onwards, it was a conscious 
decision that I was making and I was aware that I was avoiding pain. Mm. Whereas previously I was just having fun. I get you. That was the that was the shift that happened there. Yeah. So when was this when was this light bulb moment then? Uh, I don't know if it would be a light bulb moment. Where it came to a moment of realization, it was more like a black hole was moment. It? Yeah. Yeah. And it was um maybe like three days before I decided to stop drinking alcohol, which would have been uh, 15th of December, 2021. It was the 18th of December when I made a commitment to go a year without alcohol and I haven't gone back to it since. But it was three days before that, that I went out and I ended up sniffing cocaine and doing all the things that Mm -hmm. I was really trying to avoid. Mm -hmm. And I was also studying to become a therapist. I'd just started studying to become a therapist and I just felt like a total fraud. I was like, how can I... possibly be studying as a therapist wanting to work with people who've got addictions whilst i'm still doing it myself yeah so there's the shame that came with that it's like what am i fucking doing so that was the black hole moment where it was like looking in the mirror saying mate you can't go on like this it's not going to work if you want to build a therapy practice and help people you got to lead from the front yeah and by example absolutely the moment absolutely And, and and how did you stop with the help of my therapist I talk about this a lot in my content as well. I wouldn't be here without the help of Hugh Osborne, who's my therapist, a specialist addiction therapist. And, you know, we said right at the beginning, it's so much more compelling when the person you work with has experienced it firsthand. And he has, he's been in addiction as well and he speaks about it openly. So I really resonated and connected with him and he helped me work through what it meant to be adopted, the weight and grief that came with losing my mum. Um, identity crisis that we haven't really talked about yet but this is where that came to a head as well because all of those years that I'd spent going out partying connecting with people superficially now were meaningless because I'd arrived at a place of acceptance saying that's not me and that can't be me anymore mm. so it's like letting go to past identities and stepping into a new one well let's 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 explore that then a little bit because mm. when we talk about identity it's very interesting isn't it I had a guest on here um, just a couple of weeks ago and he spoke about um, his challenges with alcohol mm. he ended up in rehab okay mm. which I know you know you've got some interesting stats around rehab that that for some it works but for a lot of people it doesn't mm-hmm. and there's obvious reasons why and we could do a whole episode on that mm. but um, as far as identity crisis for him was concerned in his story he felt that all of his life He'd been wearing an artificial mask mm. to the outside world. Mm-hmm. And when Mentel, the men's mental health charity, talk about this and they bring people into, into session or into circle, as they call it, mm-hmm. they ask men to do two things. Number one, take your mask off, mm. your ego, leave it at the door. Mm-hmm. Number two, the emotional mag- baggage that a lot of men carry around with them, take that imaginary rucksack off. Let's, mm. let's imagine that we've got a rucksack full of emotions. Let's take that off as well. And let's leave that at the door. And let's gather in circle as men and just be bloody honest with each other. Mm-hmm. So for you, w- w- can you can you relate to that, the, the mask scenario? Mm. Yeah. Well, that's evident in the steroid use, right? A lot of men take steroids because they want to inflate their ego and appear more... Um, of more high status and that was me so it was further exacerbated that mask sensation when i finally had to stop taking steroids because that was like literally as my muscles deflated it was deflating my yeah my ego and my mask was like slipping off you know imagine like Mm. a halloween mask which was falling off as i was shrinking down and Mm. the shame was setting in it was like oh shit i'm being revealed to the world here but what was wrong with being revealed well i just didn't want to face it Okay. I just didn't want to face it at the time. I was just afraid of being Dan. And more importantly, I didn't know who Dan was because I'd been applying different personas yeah. to different people, often encouraged by employers in sales. You know, I was told, this is a really vivid memory that's just come back to me. <laughs> in sales, you have to be a chameleon. Yeah, you, you have do, to, you do, and, you do. And you have to try to match personalities to the, to the customer who sat in front of you. But for somebody who's already very insecure and unsure of what their inherent identity is, that's quite dangerous because you run the risk of losing who you actually are. And I was definitely one of those people. 
That's interesting, isn't it? Mm. I've heard that so many times and I can mm. relate to that. Being mm. the chameleon, I, I think I may have even put it in some of my coaching sessions over the years, you know, mm -hmm. remember you, 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 you've got to adapt to, yeah. to the person in front of you. Yeah. Christ, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so um, when you've worked with your therapist, yeah. when you've come to, to the point of enough is enough mm -hmm. I, and I now want to move in a different direction, I'm going to train mm -hmm. to be... A, a NLP practitioner uh, and um, uh, the other wonderful work that you do, a hypnotherapist, cogn mm. cognitive and everything else that you, that you do. Mm. How did that feel to you, Dan, to actually now be looking in the mirror at Dan Martin? Unfamiliar. Very unfamiliar. I didn't know who it was. And it took a long time. It wasn't an overnight process. No, I can imagine. And, and you know what, Ian? I'm still figuring out who Dan Martin is. I don't think that it's a... It's a destination that you get to because we're constantly evolving. So it's going to change over time. Yeah, but I, I love that, by the way. It's a destination you get to. Yeah. I, 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 I always say that we're all a work in progress, right? Absolutely. Nobody's got it figured out. And, and, and if, we're, if we think we're at the destination, yeah. then mm, I, I would question you because we're still on the journey, aren't we? Yeah. Personal development completed it, mate. <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> it don't exist, does it? It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. No. No. So, um, yeah, it was a gradual process and there were a few other instrumental people, um, who, who helped me get there. And there's one memory that I was reminded of this morning, funnily enough, but it's perfectly relevant to this. And that's, um, that same friend who I went to Peru with, we had a mushroom experience at my flat in Manchester once. And we were just like brainstorming ideas on the whiteboard that I had in my bedroom and um, he was public speaking at the time and he spoke fairly recently to that event about the need to back yourself. And he turned to me whilst we were still kind of high on um, mushrooms, but very different kind of high to, to cocaine and all those compounds, very introspective. And I do believe there's value in it. Um, he looked me in the eye and he said, damn mate, you need to back yourself. And those words cut through me and that allowed me to let go of lots of those layers of identity and masks that I was wearing before that point. So that was a really pivotal moment for me moving through that identity crisis as mm. well. There's often moments, I don't know if you've got any like this, where you scan back in you know, two or three words and they just cut through everything and then we shatter. Yeah, no, I, I, I can, I can relate to that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's 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 coming to those points of, and I think I think it's it's coming to the points where you strip back the layers enough, and it's painful stripping back the layers. It really is, mm. and taking that mask off, mm. what just in you know just as I, I sort of say, you know, the, the mask for me was many layered, many faceted, faceted. Mm. But as I got to the final layer, and I was trembling, mm. metaphorically speaking, mm -hmm. and I take that final layer off. Mm. And I look at myself in the mirror mm. and I say, Ian Beaton, mm. you got this. Mm. There right? you are. There you are. Mm. Hi, mate. Where you been? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's so fucking liberating. It is. It's incredible. Yeah. It's not easy, though. A lot of people no, never get it's there. No, e it's not easy. And it's you know, not easy. I've got, I've got a theory here. I don't know whether you'd agree with this. It'd be interesting to know whether you do. Um, we talk about identity crisis here. Midlife crisis is something which is often spoken about, right? A lot of people go through what they call a midlife crisis. Dan's staring me in the eyes now because he knows I'm a lot older than him. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I, I truly believe that a midlife crisis is actually an identity crisis. It's yeah. just been rebranded. No, I think it is. No, I think it's it is. It's been rebranded. And I, think it um, is. I do believe that most people will have one. Yeah. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think it's something to be afraid of because a lot of people are on autopilot, yeah, right? But, yeah, but you know... Hey, I love this now. We've, we've yeah. switched into a really interesting subject matter, and uh, uh, all of it's been interesting so far. Yeah. But this, this, this is really interesting when we talk about this because, you know, midlife crisis, it's a term which is banded around. But do people actually get granular with it? Because what is it? What is a midlife crisis? Well, it's probably that you've got to a certain age, and you know, stating the obvious here, but you know, oh, I don't have the the wife i don't have the children or i do have the wife i do have the children i'm not happy with that i do have the career but i'm really not happy with the career and i haven't been for a long time i've got the car but you know what doesn't mean anything to me mm. i've got the bulging bank balance or i haven't got the bulging bank balance why haven't i got the bulging bank balance i've got the bulging bank balance but i'm still not happy so so there's all these 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 elements mm. 
But the reason I'm, 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 I've just jumped on this one, Dan, is because it's not just midlife crisis anymore, is it? There's a lot of people, a lot of youngsters. Mm. There's no no tag for this. Mm. But I, I see, I talk to a lot of youngsters, the younger generation, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, into those, into those formative years, and they're having a freaking crisis. Mm-hmm. Because they're like, oh, I've been watching this guy online and, and like, he's only 20. Mm. He's a multimillionaire influencer, mm. you know, and all he has to do is look at the camera. So, um, so then they're having the bloody crisis as well. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's arguably deeper than identity. It's an existential crisis. And I believe it comes from a lack of purpose and meaning. That's why I think it is. Most people are so passive these days that they are chasing something that's ephemeral it's material it's wealth it's status it's fame it's glory but then they arrive at a place whereby it's hollow and it's empty and for a lot of people that's 30 years into a career and you get this like existential slap around the face with like what the hell have i been doing for the past 30 years yeah and why am i so unfulfilled yeah this is all fucking pointless (laughs) yeah yeah or the other one as well is you know um relationships yeah right yeah. A lot of people into a relationship, they work hard, it's not reciprocated. Yeah. There's lots and lots of reasons why relationships break down. Yeah. Um, but again, this is partly what you and I are talking about right now with this with with this midlife crisis, early crisis, this this existential crisis. Yeah. It is. I do believe it's a lack of purpose and meaning and that's um that's a really big part of the work that I do with my clients because it's something that I don't actually see often spoken about in the recovery community. And that is, what do you do once you've stopped? Because stopping an addictive behavior is one part, but then yeah. what do you do? Because if you haven't got a compelling reason not to go back to it, then you're going to go back to it and you're going to relapse. Yeah. And meaning and purpose and fulfillment are kind of holy trinity of what is required to keep somebody out of the hole. And that is having a reason to get out of bed in the morning, a energy or an essence that's bigger than you. It's not, I want to go and buy a new BMW. It's not, I want to get a Rolex. It's not, I want to have 10,000 followers on Instagram. It's, I want to help a thousand people stop addiction and live a better life. It's like way bigger than me and it will be here long after I'm dead and it can continue going. That's purpose. And we need that regardless of whether we've got an addiction or not having a compelling reason to get up and out of bed and make a difference and be of service and do good things for the world is what gives people fulfillment and prevents things like identity crisis from happening in the first place. I mean, is that why you're doing what you're doing? hundred percent. Yeah. 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 It gives me fulfillment. It makes me feel um, like I'm making a difference and it's, I I talked about this in my content today. Growth is infectious, Mm. you know, I'll help one person out of addiction. They might feel inspired in the same way that I did. They then go and train as a therapist and then they're doing the same thing. It's like this domino effect of change and growth and freedom, which is being facilitated as a result of me, but it's not. It's my therapist who helped me and his therapist who helped him. And you know what I mean? It's this like chain reaction, which is going on long after me. Yeah. Mm. How do you feel now, Dan, differently daily to when if you can remember those dark days Mm. how does how does it feel what's the contrast it's massive it's massive but don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not a finished article i still struggle i still experience cravings i still experience urges um i still experience challenging emotions like yesterday i said to you i was speaking at a live event in front of 120 people and i felt really really anxious before that But the difference now is the anxiety doesn't control me. I control it. So I'm able to feel an emotion that comes up, recognize it and go, okay, I'm going to move that to the side for one minute because I've got a job to do here. Whereas previously, I'd feel an emotion come up, whether it was anxiety or stress or something different, and that would then get control of me and I'd be at the mercy of that. So the biggest contrasting shift that's taking place now is that I can relate to emotion, i.e., dissociate from it and look at it almost as like a passive distant observer and understand it rather than relating from it whereby the anxiety has got his hands firmly on the wheel and i'm on the back seat getting thrown around all over the place 
Beautifully put. So obviously you you you've been practicing for a while now. Mm. You use the freedom solution, which I love. Um, your motto is end addiction, gain clarity, build the life of your dreams. Mm. You're working with some amazing individuals. You're giving them them the tools and and the, and the solutions to to be back to where they need to be, to take that mask off, to yes. to look confidently in the mirror yeah. and say, I love you. You know, yeah. I love myself. You yeah. know, yeah. and life gets better for them. How can our listeners? reach you what's the best way to reach you dan and 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 uh, you know anybody out there who is struggling by the way i think one of the biggest pieces of advice i could give you um is acknowledge it yes yeah don't fucking keep lying to yourself yeah acknowledge it yeah and then once you've acknowledged it do something about it yes yeah Take time to find the right person. I'm not going to say Absolutely, here. absolutely. I'm not going to... There'll be people who listen to this and they might not resonate with me and that's okay. I'm not here to be liked by everyone. But if you do acknowledge it and you recognize you need to do some work on it, go and speak to as many different people as you can, whether that's coaches, therapists, watch a load of videos on YouTube on different people who are specialists within the area of addiction. Just get curious. But put a lot of time into finding the right person because the number one predictor of success in therapy isn't the type of therapy it's the connection between the therapist and the client. It's that simple. Yeah, I can I can t- totally totally resonate with that. I've I not 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 addiction based, but I've had various therapists over the years. Um, some have been better than others. Mm-hmm. I work with a therapist now. I don't know whether she would be comfortable with me uh, uh, giving her name out, but anybody who wants to know, uh, please contact me, DM me, and I'll share that with you. She is incredible. Mm. And I've worked with her for, you know, several months now. Mm. Um, and it's been st- stuff that's been beneficial to me that perhaps would have taken mm. a long, long time with somebody else or maybe never got there at all mm. because we just connect. She knows me. She's read me really, really well. She knows how to uh, narrate Mm-hmm. to me in a way that i understand that's beneficial to me mm. and and just just uh our connection is amazing so you are you're absolutely bang on the money there mm. dan but you know if people were listening to you today and say you know this guy's cool and, and then they start to check you out um, i know you can find you on linkedin dan mm. martin just search dan martin but mm-hmm. where else uh, website social yeah website my website is www.thefreedomsolution.com mm-hmm. i am on instagram and um, my girlfriend is going to be joining me in my business in a couple of months, whereby we're going to be posting on Instagram as well. It's at the Freedom Solution with an underscore at the end. Okay. But LinkedIn is where I'm most active. So yep. LinkedIn.com slash Dan TFS, I believe. Okay. Yeah, cool. All right. Um, anything you'd like to leave us with as a, as a, as a, a closing gambit, a, a pearl of wisdom, just a, a, a statement, anything that you'd like to say, Dan? Put you on the spot there, haven't I? Yeah, no, there's, there's two things that I'd like to leave you with. And these are just two massive insights that completely changed my life when I learned them. The first one is that there is no failure, only feedback. This is a lesson that actually comes from NLP and um, built on the idea that failure is only something that exists if we perceive it to be a failure. Um, Thomas Edison, the guy who is famous for inventing the light bulb, failed over a hundred thousand times and he was ridiculed for that. People would say, aren't you disappointed in yourself for failing so many times? And he would turn around and he'd say, I haven't failed. I found over a hundred thousand ways that it doesn't work. It's feedback. There's no failure, only feedback. So that's one. And then the second one would be anything more than nothing is something. And this is really powerful within addiction because we'll often focus on the areas in which we fail but remember no failure any feedback and whether it's a day a month or a year anything more than nothing is something beautiful way to wrap the show thank you so much my pleasure it's been an honor this has been so fun (laughs) (laughs) hasn't it just yeah it's been a great conversation (laughs) all right buddy listen you take care and uh we'll uh we'll speak again soon thank you Ian. big love Big love to you too. Give me a hug, mate. That's amazing. That was an incredible conversation. Thank you, dude. I think you'll agree that was quite a story. Join me again for next week's episode of Ian Beaton's So What's Your Story? 
If you enjoyed this episode, it meant something to you, or maybe you think a friend or a loved one might like to listen to it too, go ahead and share it with them. Remember, if you have a story you'd like to share, or perhaps you know someone who does, I invite you to join me on my podcast. I can be contacted by email, web, or social. Thank you. You've just listened to So What's Your Story?